Hey guys, welcome back to the English Corner. Today's Teaching Tuesday is going to be about the novel we just finished reading on Friday. Now, if you haven't been keeping up with the Friday episodes that have been going up, we have been reading The Magician's Nephew by C.S. Lewis. That's the first book of the seven book series, The Chronicles of Narnia, that I've decided that we're going to start with just because, one, they're easy reads, and two, I absolutely love the storyline and love that there's a lot that we can learn, both from an English standpoint and then just from a learnable element on top of that. So today's Teachable Teaching Tuesday, I should say, not teachable. Teaching Tuesday is going to deal with the comments and things we need to be looking at and evaluating based on that book. So if you haven't been listening to the Friday episodes, you probably want to go back and listen to the book because a lot of what I'm going to talk about today deals with what was said about the book or actually what... I read about the book, read from the book itself, because um, so far Fridays have just been the book itself being read. So, if you, as I said, if you haven't listened to those yet, you probably need to stop this episode, go back and listen to those before you continue listening, because a lot of what I'm going to say will not make sense. If you have been keeping up with the Friday episodes, by all means, continue listening, and hopefully you have some good insights that you can add or, you know, send me that will allow me to be able to edit and best make this podcast a hit. Alright, so the first thing, how this episode's going to be set up, is I'm going to talk about some questions that we really need to think about when it comes to the novel that we just read, The Magician's Nephew. And then I'll go through and deal with some of the literary terms that apply to the book and how that affected the story, and then go through and talk about that. So the first question that I'm going to ask myself and ask you guys to think about is, what was one of the most pivotal decisions that Diggory makes in the whole novel? Well, he makes a lot of important and difficult decisions in the book, But the one that's pivotal or the most important plot point that comes to that decision was that he ignored both Polly's wishes and the warning regarding the bell. That decision does not only affect him, but it sets in motion just a chain of events that's going to have the repercussions for generations to come. Not only for people in our world, but for the people of Narnia. Because... Ringing that bell breaks the spell that's kept Jadis asleep in the room of it, the chamber of images. And in waking, waking her up, it also awakens all the evil intentions that she's had inside of her from a young girl and all the events that she's had to go through while in Charn. Now, this doesn't really affect the people of her land because they're already gone, but. It puts Narnia in jeopardy, and it puts Aslan's land in a great, in great danger from her intentions, which are terrible. Um, also, it endangers children in the future novels, who will also go to Narnia, 
and be in grave danger from her. So, if you've read any of the other novels or watched the movies, you already know a little bit about this. But if you haven't, just wait, hold on. We will be starting the next book in the Narnia series here in a bit, where we will continue to see the effect that waking Jadis up had. So, the second question I have is, why do you think... Aunt Letty wants to keep Diggory away from Uncle Andrew. So if you remember way back in the beginning when we were first introduced to Aunt Letty and Uncle Andrew and Diggory, um, we've, this is when that situation began. So at first we can kind of assume that Aunt Letty fears that a little boy such as Diggory might provide an, you know, annoying be annoying to a man like Andrew, who's brilliant. So her intention is to keep Diggory out of her, his uncle's study, to prevent being noisy and, you know, poking him with papers, poking through his stuff, bothering him with questions that only a child would ask because Diggory is not, you know, extremely young. So he's about 10 or so, but, you know, that's still young enough to have lots of those young, innocent child quote-unquote childish questions to ask but as we continue to read through the story it becomes clear that Letty was actually trying to protect Diggory from his uncle's magic and all the experiments he was doing so you have to think how much did she actually really know about um, Uncle Andrew's godmother and you know really being you know a fairy so you have to kind of wonder how much did she really know prior um, she, you know, of course, didn't want Andrew to fill the boy's head with talk of that magic. So, again, going back to that, how much did she really know? Um, but, you know, she neither supports nor believes in that, the experimenting in magic. So you really have to think, again, did she really know a lot about what um, Uncle Andrew said about his godmother? Because all of this... Pr- Kind of goes to prove that she's practical and logical and wants her nephew to be practical and logical like she is and not prone to thinking, oh, magic and fairies and all that stuff. You know, fairy tales are real, Think, you know, becoming what people would call insane and crazy. That's kind of a rambling about that, but I hope that made sense. If it doesn't, let me know. I'll try and clean it up a bit. All right, so question number three deals with courage and heroes so this is just you know kind of who would I describe as a hero in the novel how is courage displayed and how does this reflect on the plot development of the novel well of course Diggory matures throughout the novel and becomes more and more like a hero because one he's the protagonist or the main person storyteller the one whose eyes the story is told kind of through he makes his first heroic decision um, when he decides to enter the other world so not to leave Polly alone. That was very heroic, so that's one reason why he's described as a hero. In Narnia, he, he has lots of courage in that he accepts the task of retrieving the silver apple to protect Narnia. Yes, he probably didn't have a lot of you know, option in doing that because Aslan asked him to do it. So 
if Aslan asks you to do something, he always has a reason and he always knows that you're going to end up doing it. We'll say that as we continue going on through the stories and the novels and everything, but keep that in mind. Then the last little thing I want to talk about concerning that is Diggory, because of that, he's able to bring us home a special apple in order to help cure his mom's illness, which was, you know, of course, part of his overall reason for going and doing all this stuff, stuff, hoping to find something magical to help heal his mom. So by the end of the novel, Diggory, he demonstrates courage, care, and selflessness, which are three key qualities to becoming a hero. So that's just why I think Diggory's the hero of the novel and how his courage was displayed. Alright, question number four. How did Diggory's view and Polly's view of Queen Jadis or the witch differ. How does this highlight the different dispositions or personalities of the two children? So, Diggory, we'll start with him, as you know, I'm going alphabetical. Diggory believes that the witch is one of the most beautiful women he's ever seen when he first sees her in that hall of images. At the same time, he knows, he acknowledges and tips his hat to the fact that she's very powerful. However, because of his beauty, her beauty, she still seems to hold some power over Diggory. And at times, she's able to tempt Diggory into doing something wrong. Polly, on the other hand, you know, from the very, from the get-go, she knew that the witch was cruel. And she doesn't feel that the witch is at all beautiful. She, and because of that, she's not tempted by her wiles. But she has to stay by her friend to make sh- to help him make those decisions because, you know, whether or not she believes he's right, she's there to help him through it to help be that guiding voice saying, hey, think about this. Are you doing it because it's something you want to do or because she's has that influence on you? So they're very loyal friends and they never let the witch get in the way of that loyalty because Diggory always ends up listening to her, and then because he's listening to her, Aslan's able to come through, or that guiding force is able to come through and kind of say, hey, this is what you really should be doing. Alright, number five. The friendship of Diggory and Polly is often tested when their desires are in conflict. So, how did they compromise, and then how do they feel about those decisions of compromise? So they, of course, have to make lots of decisions together because they're the two who have the rings. But they also have lots of conflicts because, you know, when you're working hand-in-hand with someone so closely and for a long period of time, especially way at the beginning of your relationship, that's going to cause conflicts. Diggory is always very curious and sometimes he makes decisions on an impulse, on a whim, because he doesn't stop to think things through. Polly is brave, but she's also logical and practical, just like Aunt Letty is. And she likes to take the time to consider, you know, what's going to be the right thing if we do this, what's going to be the wrong thing to do if we do this, pros, cons, that sort of thing. Before she even does anything, makes a decision, 
acts upon anything she likes to think, think things through. Now, both of the children learn to compromise so that way they can continue their adventure. So, for example, they decide to go halfway back to London with their green rings before they explore the other worlds to other poles in the woods. That was the very first form of compromise that demonstrates their theme of friendship and the importance of coming together to make decisions because, you know, they they both saw the logic because Polly was like, how are we going to know which pool is going to be the best because Diggory just wanted to plow forward. She made him stop and think. Was she opposed to checking the other world's pools for worlds? No. She just was thinking logically, rationally, practically. How are we going to know which way, which pool is the pool to go home if we don't mark it? Because we're going to end up getting tired. We're going to need food. If we get in a scrape and we end up back in the wood between the worlds, how are we going to know how to get home and get away from that, you know, anything that's going to be dangerous for us? Diggory wasn't thinking about that. He was just thinking about, you know, being a curious boy of about 10. He really wasn't thinking of the practicalities of the everything. He just wanted to go and have fun. I'm not saying that Polly didn't want to have fun as much as Diggory did, but she also was listening more to that logical, practical side of her. And I'm pretty sure that Aunt Letty wanted to try and help um, develop that in him, which is why she didn't want Uncle Andrew to be in contact with Diggory and Diggory to be in contact with Uncle Andrew if she could help it. But, you know, boys being boys, they eventually find what they want, no matter how much we try to persuade them from that. Alright, enough of that rambling. Let's go on to the next one. So, question number six. How is the literary element of foil used in the story in the characters of Queen Jadis and Aslan? Well, Jadis represents evil. Aslan represents good. They both use magic. Queen Jadis uses her magic for evil. She uses that to rule over others as a tyrant and to destroy. Aslan, he uses his to create a new world and to rule fairly and justly. So those opposite, so these characters are opposite each other and completely highlight each other's differences. So where one is weak, the other is strong. That's pretty much what a foil is. If you don't really understand what's going on when I say some of these terms, Go to the Teaching Tuesday one that talks about literary um, elements where I go through and I define and explain everything when it comes to literary elements. Alright, so number seven. This is discuss the relationship of curiosity and temptation. Write a note to myself, just a moment. Alright, so, discuss the relationship of curiosity and temptation. Well, and you have to think about, okay, curiosity, temptation, how do they really relate? Well, usually when you're curious, you find things that might not be good for you, and you're tempted to do them. And because you're tempted to do them, that means you want to find out exactly what's going on, which is, of course, the definition of curiosity. So the reason that Polly and Diggory set off to explore 
anything and everything is because, as I said earlier, they're children. They like to have fun. They wanted to have an adventure. And, you know, being a young boy, that's all little boys want. They have that big old adventure. However, there's always that however, but um, that curiosity for adventure, that desire for it, is also what gets them into trouble. And it's especially because it gets the best of them, and they're tricked to do the wrong thing. They're to fall into temptation. Now, one trick of this sort happens when Polly is mesmerized by Uncle Andrew's beautiful rings way back in the beginning of the story, and is thus, and by doing so, she is tricked into touching one of them. The Agrity's temptation, he had a lot of trouble controlling his curiosity. That's why he couldn't resist hitting the bell that they find in Charn. So those are both just isolated incidents of them individually. Alright, so within the book, it talks about a high and lonely destiny. Those words were first spoken by Uncle Andrew, and then later when they meet Jadis, that they both had those high and lonely destinies. So what were their meanings behind those? And, you know, are there any literary elements that could have helped help us to um, describe that? Well, both Uncle Andrew and Queen Janus are, as, kind of as we hinted at throughout the book, they're magicians. They both have cruel and immoral ways of thinking. They are characterized in many ways as evil. Although Jadis is the far eviler, eviler of the two. So they believe that them, each of them themselves, they're above those common people. Which excuses them from having to follow any sort of moral boundaries, moral codes, whatever. They're above and beyond everyone else because they have this high and lonely destiny of being magicians that isolates them. So they both must believe that they are in a position to have power over others. Which means that they don't have anyone who's equal to them. Makes th- that makes them lonely. How, mu- how does magic play a role in the novel? That's the next question I want to talk about. Well, if you really don't... If you really weren't listening, there's a lot of magic in this novel. It's the driving plot for one of the many driving plot forces of the novel. The action begins with Uncle Andrew's mag when the magic rings, hint hint magic, transports the children to that world but world place between the worlds. Narnia, which is a world that was created entirely by magic in the story, is the setting for much of the rising action and the climax of the story. And then, of course, the major conflict of the story comes about because Queen Jace's dark, dark magic is a threat to the good magic of Narnia. So those are just all the mad roles that magic has in this just this one novel. Alright, so this one, the next one, which is going to be our last question, talks about how Lewis paved the way in The Magician's Nephew for this sequel, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, which, intent is the next book we're going to read. Well, 
C.S. Lewis refers to children at the end who make a trip to Narnia long after Diggory and Polly, but did so via a different method, not with the rings that he devised. So there's another kind of obscure reference that's made to the wardrobe, hint, hint, the one that's listed in the title, that is made by Diggory and that he has in his bedroom in the big country home that his family moved into at the end of the of the magician's nephew. If you were listening to Friday's episode, you would know that it was made from the wood of the tree that grew from the apple core that he planted after he fed his mother the apple from Narnia. Yes, I know that's a long set of events, but that's what it is. Um, so, that's, the object eventually serves as a doorway to Narnia that descendants enter through, other humans enter through. So, he also discusses the lamppost that Jadis brought to Narnia, that it's the lamppost that lights the way for children who happen to be in Narnia, come to Narnia in the future. Hint, hint, lamp. Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, it's going to be in there, if you don't already know. Sorry for spoilers, but there you go. Okay, so now we've kind of gotten gone through all the questions I had that I wanted to talk about. And we're going to go more into the um, um, literary terms and how they apply to the novel. So, if you need a break, now's your time to take a break. If you... Need to go, you know, to the bathroom to get a drink, go to work, whatever. Here's a good time to stop. Alright, so, as I said in the last segment, we are moving from the question portion that I've had to the more, to more of the literary terms. So, the first one I want to talk about is an allegory that's in the book. It's the tree and the fruit. So, this is going to be more of a biblical reference because, as I said in the um, one of the very first episodes that I put up before we started reading, that um, C.S. Lewis was a Christian and he liked to put lots of Christian elements into his books and into everything he wrote. So, the Chronicles of Narnia is no exception. So, in this book... The tree and the fruit are referenced to something. So, if we look, start out with the book, Diggory is asked to to retrieve a special fruit from a tree inside a garden within a golden gate. That's in the last few chapters. So, this tree in Narnia is the allusion to the tree of life in the Garden of Eden found in the Bible in the the beginning of the book of Genesis. The biblical story you know, demonstrates the first sin of the race of man, which was Adam and Eve. So in the Bible, Adam and Eve live in the Garden of Eden, which was paradise on earth. In the garden, there is a tree of knowledge from which Adam and Eve are forbidden to eat. However, one day a serpent tempts Eve to eat from the tree. She shares that fruit that she was eating with Adam, thus they disobeyed God's order causing their, them to be kicked out of the Garden of Eden because 
there couldn't be any disobedience, any sin, anything that separates us from God to in the garden, which is where in the beginning of Genesis is where God would come to earth and be with everyone. So, like the biblical story, the tree in Narnia serves as an allegory. The there's an inscription in the in Narnia on the, on the gates that says that anyone who takes the fruit for themselves will get what they wish for, but be disappointed for eternity. Diggory does the right thing by only taking the fruit for Aslan because Aslan, if you haven't guessed, is al- allegorical the allegorical figure for God. For Jesus, and so Diggory obeyed and only did what Aslan asked him to do, which was to get one piece of fruit. In contrast, the queen, who represents um, the serpent in the biblical story, she succumbs to the temptation and she eats one fruit, even though that's not what you were supposed to do. So, you know, in the allegory. Queen Jadis, aka the serpent, you know, alluded she tempts Eve, who was in the story was Diggory, to go against what is right and take a piece of fruit for his own selfish reasons, for his own purpose. Diggory resists and is triumphant and, you know, does not succumb to the evil, evil intentions of Jadis, which. Unfortunately, in the biblical um, version, the more biblical version of this, Eve didn't. So, Diggory goes against what is right. Nope, sorry. I'm not following my notes very well. So, in addition, Diggory receives the reward for his good actions. Aslan allows him to take one of the fruits from the tree that he planted by the river to take home to cure his mother. So the moral of that allegory was that doing the right thing, you're going to be rewarded. Giving into temptation is only going to cause misery, suffering, getting what you wanted, but at a very high cost. All right, so another allegory that I picked up on is the land of Charn itself. Now, this is the land where Queen Jadis originally ruled, where we originally meet Jadis, and it's a dead and stale world. So the history of Charn demonstrated to the faces of the ancestors and the Hall of Images, I think that's what it was called, um, or the Room of Images, I can't remember. Um, it shows that it was not always a cruel and suffering world. However, as the years went by and more people started ruling, um, greed and desire of power for power seemed to have corrupted the people. Queen Jadis, who was at the very end of the line, wanted all of the power and nothing would stand in her way of getting it. Um, so in an act of vengeance against her sister, the Jadis ended all life in Charn by using the spell known as the Deplorable World Word. Saying that spell killed everyone living, every living thing, except the sayer of the spell, which in that case was Jadis. She had no remorse for having killed all the living beings in her world. So the story of Charn 
is allegorical in that it the that is an allegory for the dangers of greed, arrogance, and immorality. If those desires are not controlled, they can lead to destruction of a civilization. So Aslan was using and using the allegory of Charn, he warned the the children at the end of the store of the book, saying Great nations in your world will be ruled by tyrants who care no more for joy and justice and mercy than the Empress Jadis. Let your world beware. That is the warning. So here you can see that Aslan sees that the world the children came from, the people are also in danger of being overcome by greed and arrogance, which lead to tyranny and suffering. And again, this is another hint towards biblical principles if you read through the entire bible especially you know daniel um and revelation those are the two big ones talks about how our world will end up like that but that's a whole nother um you know multiple episodes on top of what we're talking about today so we'll I'll just leave it at that and come back to it if and when we have time so the next type of literary term I want to talk about is a motif and that's the perception so there's this saying beauty is in the eye of the beholder now that idea is an idea expressed through the motif of perception so in this book there are different characters who have different perceptions of what beauty is, what magic and other world and of other worlds are. Just those are just to name a few. So perception is an important tool through which the characters view the world. So one example of how perception is the difference between Jadis's, Polly's, and Diggory's view of magic and how that shapes reality. While in Narnia, Queen Jada sees the magic as a threat, while the children see the magic as beautiful and fascinating. Another one is Uncle Andrew's inability to hear or understand the talking of the animals in Narnia. So thus, somehow perception is a choice. How one views the world depends on where one comes from, one's morality, and one's openness to the magic. So, and it's close, and that... Motif of perception is closely linked to the themes of magic, good, and evil. So I want to move, shift into some, a symbol. Several symbols, actually. First one's going to be Aslan. So this one, of course, I kind of hinted at earlier. Throughout the history of Christianity, the lion has been associated with strength and, visit, and victory. So, the Lion of Judah was a symbol for the tribe of Judah in the book of Genesis. Later in the book of Revelation, you know, the Lion of Judah comes to symbolize Jesus. Aslan is, a sim- is symbolic of God as the creator and a- of a divine force of good, finding the force of evil, evil which is, hint, hint, the next symbol we're going to talk about, Queen Jadis. Aslan is also symbolic of the benevolent of a benevolent God who inspires faith and love in his people. He also symbolizes the power of faith, as many of the things he says or does rely on faith from his flock. Uh, 
So, for example, Diggering Paul, you undertake the difficult journey, symbolic of a pilgrimage, on faith, merely because Aslan asked them to do that. And they believed it was right because Aslan, because it is Aslan who asked them to do it. So, throughout the whole, the other six books that we're going to be reading, Aslan symbolizes many aspects of Christianity as well as goodness. Alright, so as I, you know, hint hinted at, we're going to talk about Queen Jadis being a symbol. So she, if Aslan symbolizes good, Jadis symbolizes evil and, and takes on many forms. She tries to trick Diggory into eating an apple from the, the apple tree that's representative of the snake in the Garden of Eden. She also symbolizes how she rules her subjects. And how being and how evil does that. Um, without remorse, she's killing her sub- subjects of Charn with no remorse. She is very flippant about it. She's very cruel, uncaring, arrogant, selfish. All of those embody evil. She also symbolizes evil in who she is as a human or however you would call her race. Um, and then the battle between her and Aslan symbolizes the battle between good and evil. Alright, so there's another motif that I didn't that I forgot to put in there. It was the, the existence of other worlds. Um, the existence of other worlds is a motif throughout this novel. Um, particularly worlds outside of our galaxy rather than merely communities in, on our planet. So Charn, for example, is said to have a completely different sun that's portrayed as being old and a dark red, thus making it being from a different galaxy with a different sun. These other worlds, you know, can't, of course can't be seen through a telescope or reached by space travel. Rather, they can only be reached by magic. The children visit at least three other worlds, and then they reach them by jumping into ponds, and later in other parts of Narnia series by walking through the wardrobe, um, so the motif of other worlds is also closely linked to the theme of magic, which is <clears throat> it's, it's a very small motif, but it's one that has great impact on how the stories are pl- are played out. All right, there's some similes that I want, really want to talk about that I thought were really important. Um, the first one is the plum cake. So towards the beginning. It was a rich place, as rich as plum cake. So this is when Diggory is describing the wood between the worlds. And he says it was a rich place that was as rich as plum cake. So when he said that, he said that, you know, as the wood had many levels and depths that came together to produce certain colors. And of extreme intensity at, at richness. So the arrangement is like that of a plum cake. Which has flavors of such intensity that they seem exaggerated. Although each ingredient can be tasted and appreciated individually, the combination creates something unlike anything else. So that's one simile. The second simile would be Peacock. So Uncle Andrew preened himself in front of the mirror in exactly the same way that a peacock would preen themselves in anticipation of meeting a peahen. So, a peacock and a peahen are pretty much the same, you know, um, type of animal. Peacock would be the male version, peahen would be the female version. 
So, um, so he's praying himself in anticipation of meeting a peahen like a peacock would, whom he believes he will be instantly attracted to him. So the way in which he puts on his finest clothes, made of the rich, rich fabrics, is like the peacock fanning out his tail feathers with those rich colors and a velvet-like appearance. Um, so the peahen, who, who is subject of that attention for Uncle Andrew, would have been the queen. So, and like a peacock, Andrew assumes that he's going to be irresistible for her. Which, of course, we know from the book, she only wanted to use him for however it would further her. And that's not exactly what Uncle Andrew was thinking about. Alright, so the next simile would be about a nine pin. So, nine pin bowling was what they called bowling at that time in London and in England. And the policeman fell just as though he had hit the ground, hit by great speed, by a speeding, well-aimed bowling ball. So his fall was suddenly immediate without wavering. Boom, he was knocked down. There you go. That's what it meant when it said the witch had brought the bard down on the chief policeman's helmet and the man fell like a ninepin. That's what it meant. I thought that that was one thing that needed explaining. Um, that was when, before they all, um, before Diggory and Polly decided to take Jadis out of London and they ended up in Narnia. That's what the area that I'm talking about. Alright, so um, the next thing I want to talk about is, of course, another simile. It's about the smell of the apples. So, the smell of the apple of youth was as if there was a window in the room that opened into heaven. Um, that's kind of towards the middle or end of the story. So the apple was, of course, so incredibly beautiful to look at. And because it was so beautiful to look at, it also had a smell that was wonderful. And it seemed to be a smell that could only come from heaven. Its color overshadowed every other color that was in the room, and it seemed to generate as much light as the sun. The apple was more than fruit, and its exquisite power seemed to be, you know, that link between the earthly world and one in heaven. So, the apple seems heavenly because earth could not produce something that was that beautiful and have be so intense and have the qualities that it, it did. The next thing I want to talk about is a metaphor. The heart jumping. So Polly's heart jumped in her body when she heard it. When that's you know when she heard the noise of Aslan singing. You know a heart can't literally jump out of someone's body. So here it's a metaphor, to saying that she, the beating of her heart was so loud that it felt like her heart was just trying to jump out of her chest. Okay, the next few things I want to talk about deal with different types of irony. So we've got some situa- situational, verbal, and a few others, I think, I have listed here in my notes. Um, so the first one we're going to do is a situational irony. This is about Uncle Andrew's desire to find the, different other, the other worlds. So in Narnia, Diggory asks his uncle, I thought you wanted to know about other worlds. Don't you like to, it now that you're here? So, of course, we know that... In the beginning, Uncle Andrew was like, think of all the places that we can go, all the things we can do with these rings. I've been doing all these experiments. Think of what, you know, what I could be, what I could do. 
you know. But he didn't actually want to go there himself. He didn't want to do the actual exploring. You know, and when he was there, he really doesn't enjoy it. The irony, of course, we know was that he had desires. He, he had desired to find them, but he didn't want to actually go there and explore them. So Diggory, as we know now, would expect that if someone were so interested in finding another world, that that person would also be very interested in seeing and exploring what was in those worlds. It was not so for Uncle Andrew, which goes, you know, against all of the expectations we would have of him from the beginning when we first meet him to when he actually finally gets to go to Narnia and be, be in another world. He was, we all know how he acted based on the story. Okay, the next type of irony I kind of want to go over is verbal irony. This is Polly's statement to Diggory about what he did wrong in Charn. So, my ex, the excerpt I really want to focus on is as follows. Oh, nothing, of course, said Polly sarcastically. Only, he nearly only screwed my wrist off in the room with all the waxworks like a cowardly bully. Only struck the bell with the hammer like a silly idiot. Only turned back in the woods so that she had time to catch hold of you before we jumped into our own pool. That's all. End quote. So... Polly was, of course, very angry with Diggory in this excerpt for starting off the whole chain of events in Charn that caused them to actually meet the Queen. However, ironically, she says, Oh, nothing, and that's all. Which, when she tells him the list of things that he actually did wrong. So those things were not nothing. Also, the list is long, but she says, That's all, as if she had said only one small insignificant thing. So I, I always tell my students, verbal irony is sarcasm. That's just the easiest way for them to understand verbal irony. So the next type of irony I want to talk about is the dramatic irony. Alright, so this example is from the book about Aunt Letty. So I'll read it. It's something she said. I'm afraid it would need fruit from the land of youth to help her now. Nothing in this world would do much. So as we know, Aunt Letty is pretty much the only quote-unquote main character or main um, side character, supporting character, who doesn't go to Narnia or doesn't time travel. Because all the other... um, well, other than Diggory's, Aunt Letty and Diggory's mother are the only side characters who don't do time travel. Or, not time travel, who travel from world to world. Because everyone else traveled to different worlds. Um, Jadis traveled to multiple worlds. Um, Uncle Andrew traveled. The cabbie and his wife traveled. So, it's, so whenever Aunt Letty said this, it was very, it was what's known as dramatic irony. And she made this statement to the woman who came to their door when Jadis was in um, the real world with out and out about with Uncle Andrew after he preened himself like a peacock. Um, the woman that comes to their house with the fresh fruit for Diggory's mother, that's when Aunt Letty made that 
um, statement to the lady that Diggory overheard because he was in the room right next to the front door. So although Diggory's mother Mabel loves fresh fruit and Aunt Letty knew that she would enjoy it, she was also certain that despite having the fruit, it's not going to heal Mabel. That was her wishful thinking coming out. Of course, as I said earlier, Aunt Letty's very practical and logical. Really doesn't give off the vibe, as we would say now, that she believes in magic or the possibilities of the land of youth. But, you know, she's just saying it wishfully that, oh, even though I know, or Aunt Letty knows that these things don't exist, it would be really nice to have that because... There's nothing else we have that can cure Mabel. But little does Aunt Letty know, magic actually really does exist in those magical worlds. And that they, those worlds could contain the, that cure for his mom. So when Diggory overhears it, he does believe that perhaps there is that possibility for there being a special fruit in another world. Which is why... He was so easily tempted by Jadis. So while Aunt Letty might not believe in it, Diggory, the reader, they have, all both of us have reasons to believe that there's this land and this fruit that can cure his mother. Alright, so the next type of irony is kind of a double hitter. It's both situational and dramatic irony. So this is Aunt Letty's perception of Queen Jadis. So, when Queen Jadis is in London, she tries to display her powers to Aunt Letty by saying a magic spell to turn Aunt Aunt Letty to dust. But because she's in the real world, her powers don't work. So, all Aunt Letty hears is gibberish and thinks that Jadis is drunk. So, to Aunt Letty, Queen Jadis ironically becomes hardly more than a ridiculous lunatic, a shameless hussy out of a circus, and a drunk. No longer is Queen Jadis the all-powerful Empress of Charn that she had, up to that point, had known herself to be. Alright, so the irony is that Queen Jadis, of course, who sees herself as being that all-powerful Empress, is reduced in Aunt Letty's perception as an immortal woman, likely a drunk, crazy, part of a circus, thus making her unworthy of respect or having any power over Aunt Letty. So the, as readers, we know that we expect the queen to be received as a powerful woman because up until that point, when she was in charge, she showed how powerful she really is. Um, and the readers know that, so we know she's powerful, the children know she's powerful, Uncle Andrew is already under the queen's control because he's captivated by her beauty like Diggory was when he first saw her. However, despite this expectation of being perceived as powerful, the queen is perceived by Aunt Letty as being completely ridiculous. And despite that, having no, being an older woman and with, with no power, magical powers, Queen Aunt Letty is not in any way, shape, or form afraid of the queen. I think she even laughed a little bit. Um, and she ends up not being hurt badly when the queen throws Aunt Letty. Which is, of course, contrary to the reader and all the other characters' expectations of what could have happened 
when Aunt Letty and Jada Smith. Alright, so that's kind of the end of my um, rant about some of the um, um, literary elements that can be seen. So I'll give you guys another break if we need it, and we'll go from there. Okay guys, this last little bit of today's episode is where I'm going to be talking about some places, some things that I think and that are important in the book that I really want to talk about and explain and um, just really focus on and hone in on and just try to explain it a little bit because I know sometimes these things um, aren't explained well in the novels so I wanted to pick up on those. So first thing I wanted to talk about was the wood between the worlds. So I have a little excerpt from the beginning that kind of explains what it is. So I'll go ahead and read that. The trees grew close together and were so leafy that he could not, that he could get no glimpse of the sky. All the light was green light that came from the leaves. But there must have been a very strong sun overhead for this green daylight was bright and warm. It was the quietest wood you could possibly imagine. There were no birds, no insects, no animals, and no wind. You could almost feel the trees growing. So, this wood has this this um, description as an overwhelming image that's created of absolute tranquility. So, although the author, C.S. Lewis in this case, is appealing to our visual senses, he also appeals to our auditory senses precisely by providing that there is no sound whatsoever indicated. So, whenever the reader is which is leaving the reader to imagine total, complete silence that there's nothing to be heard in this wood. Um, one, of the, one of the reasons for the tranquility is, you know, the co- the green color. You know, e- as even the sunlight appears green because the foliage is so thick, it's acting as kind of a color filter. Um, many experts in color therapy, they consider green to be very calming. Um, one ideal for creating a relaxing environment, and the green-tinged wood was, has a relaxing and almost um, so perfect um, effect that the chil- on the children when they first arrived, because they both felt very sleepy, very drowsy. When Jadis first got there, she really couldn't breathe there. I'm pretty sure Uncle Andrew felt tired. It was only Strawberry, aka Fledge, who really didn't seem to have that much of an effect from this area. So that's one thing I wanted to pick up on was the wood between the worlds was a very calming place when in this um, story that seemed to have so many things either going right or wrong. It's always, you know, very fast, very um, action packed for them in the story as action-packed as the story was. So this world between the worlds was that place that was very calming on them, helped them kind of have that little breather, just like, okay, collect ourselves. Okay, now we can go to the next thing. All right, so the next thing I wanted to talk about was the sunlight and charm. So again, we're talking about color. So listen in to how it's described. 
It wasn't like sunlight or electric light or lamps or candles or any other light they had ever seen. It was a dull, rather red light, not at all cheerful. It was steady and did not flicker. The sky was extraordinarily dark, a blue that was almost black. When you had seen the sky, you wondered that there should be any light at all. So that's how C.S. Lewis described the sunlight there in Charn when the kids were there and taking everything in. So, of course, color and light used to set the tone and the mood of the environment. The colors in this description, they're not at all calming like the war between the world, the war, the wood between the worlds was described as. And it wasn't friendly either, but actually it was threatening kind of that, um, you know, hinting towards, hey, the person you're going to meet here, not a very nice person. Don't trust them because Charn is where they met Jadis. The darkness of that the sky mirrored the overwhelming darkness of the ambience of the place. The strange lighting foreshadowed the events that would take place there, as I said earlier. Alright, the next thing I kind of wanted to talk about was the bell in Charn. So here I'm going to give, of course, that little excerpt. As soon as the bell was struck, it gave out a note, a sweet note, such as you might have expected, and not very loud. But instead of dying away again, it went on, and as it went on, it grew louder. Before a minute had passed, it was twice as loud as it had been to begin with. It was soon so loud that the children tried to speak, but they weren't trying, they weren't thinking of speaking now. They were just standing with their mouths open. They would not have been able to hear one another. Very soon it was so loud that they could not have heard one another even by shouting. And still it grew, all on one note, a continuous sweet sound, though the sweetness had something horrible about it, till all the air in that great room was throbbing with it, and they could feel the stone floor trembling beneath their feet. So, here, we kind of have that opposite effect from the wood between the worlds. Because, in the wood between the worlds, as I said earlier, did not have any sound. The bell has sound. That's really kind of all we this excerpt talks about. It's just the sound. So, one place, one thing has color and that visual aid, whereas the the second only has that auditory. So the author is given that a tremendous long description of a single note. That note doesn't wave in its timbre, it just goes louder and louder until it overwhelms everything else. That's all you can really take in. Um, like I said, the wood between the worlds mirrored the beautiful calm greenness of the environment, whereas the ringing is overpowering and it mirrors threatening darkness and the ugliness of the world that they, the kit children are in. Um, the single note is almost hypnotic, forcing the reader and the children to focus only on this one note, on this noise. Okay, the next thing I want to talk about are the stars in Narnia, since those were the first things that they were able to see in Narnia after they heard Aslan's voice. So the voice was suddenly joined by other voices, more voices than you could possibly count. They were in harmony with it, but far higher up the scale. 
cold, tingling, silvery voices. The second wonder was that all the blackness overhead, all at once, was blazing with stars. They didn't come out gently one by one as they do on a summer evening. One moment, there had been nothing but darkness. Next, the next moment, a thousand, thousand points of light leaped out. Single stars, constellations, and planets, brighter and bigger than any in our world. So, here we're, we have some imagery, which is another literary term. That, again, is the combination of sound and vision, with the sound dictating the appearance and mood of the surroundings. So the image also shows the voice of its creator of the stars, as the creator of the stars, and the bringer of light. And, and it's in harmony with the theme of creation, which again aligns with Aslan's goodness as a creator. The sound of his voice is a good sound, and it brings light to the darkness quite suddenly and brilliantly, like a light being switched on in a sudden large-scale illumination. The description also uses onomatopoeia to let the reader know that this additional voice is sounded like tingling, silvery, which lets the reader know that they're vaguely metallic. So, in the above explanation and in the excerpt I read, I talked about Aslan's voice. So, we're gonna, I want to talk about that next. So, it's the excerpt I'm using is very short compared to the last one. And it goes, the eastern sky changes from white to pink and from pink to gold. The voice rose and rose till all the air was shaking with it. And just as it swelled in the, to the mightiest and most glorious sound it had yet produced, the sun arose. So here we get those, the image created with this description is, of course, the creator bringing majestic light and beauty to the world by ushering in the stars of a new day. Colors of the sky begin softly and crescendo until the sky is gold. The sky's gradual transformation mirrors the voice, beginning gently, then reaching a crescendo with a flash of gold and a sound so deeply resonant that the entire atmosphere swells with moves. This image of goodness and creations darkly contrasts the long ringing bell of charm, which of course we talked about earlier and described earlier in the book. That was also made the earth vibrate, but not in a way that was threatening. So with the descriptions of color and sound used to portray mood and tone, the author denotes good and bad events and foreshadows good or evil happenings. Alright, so that's the end for today's Teaching Tuesday. If you have any questions, comments, or anything to add to today's Teaching Tuesday, feel free to contact me in any way, shape, or form that you know how, and I will do my best to answer that in an upcoming Teaching Tuesday and or add it to the end of today's episode. So make sure to pay attention to that and watch for any sort of updates. Um, thank you for listening to this. I hope you enjoyed this first novel. Be prepared for Friday when I um, release the first chapter of the next book that we will be reading. And of course, I've hinted in today's episode that it will be the second novel or continuation of the story in the book The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe.
hope to see that you guys are listening on Friday. I hope you continue to enjoy the works of C.S. Lewis and his Chronicles of Narnia.